Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. It's time for another installment of Were They Great, where we explore the reigns of rulers who were given the title The Great in order to determine if they really deserved that honor. In this installment, we're covering perhaps the first man in history to ever be known by that title, Sargon of Akkad. Now, if that's a name you're unfamiliar with, that's understandable. After all, Sargon ruled during the late 24th century BCE. Also, I'm gonna be completely upfront about something. I don't know why I'm doing this episode. Weird, right? So, here's the thing. Sargon lived so long ago that we don't really know much about his actual rule. If this was just a normal episode of Royally Screwed, I would be able to work around the stories and legends, but this is Were They Great, where I only stick to the facts and actual issues surrounding the Chosen Ruler's reign. With so little that we actually know from the time period, it's gonna be tricky. Also, I'm writing this intro before I've gone in deep with my research for the episode. For all I know, this episode could be five minutes long. I'll still put it out even if it is. Luckily, you listening right now can look at how much time is left and know if I'm right or wrong. And even though I'm now recording this and now know how long it'll be, I've left this in as some sort of, I don't know, integrity? So, the briefest of intros to Sargon. He was said to be the first emperor in history and the first ruler of the Akkadian Empire, which is one of those ancient empires that existed in Mesopotamia way back in the day. If worse comes to worst with this episode, I can always just judge Sargon on the Akkadian Empire as a whole. Is that cheating? Definitely, but I'm up for the challenge, and I hope you enjoy whatever ends up coming next. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Mesopotamia in the 24th century BCE in Sargon of Akkad. Was he great? Before we can learn about Sargon and the Akkadian Empire, the empire he founded, we should learn about the civilization he replaced. In this background history lesson, let's talk about the Sumerians. They were one of the most ancient cultures in history, arriving on the scene somewhere around the 6th to 5th millennium BCE. The Sumerians lived between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the southern half of what is modern-day Iraq, the region known as Mesopotamia, which translates quite literally to the land between two rivers. When I say that the Sumerians were old, I mean, like, really old. There's always a comparison that I see made that I think fits really well. Think of ancient Greece. It's really old. For some people, it's difficult to wrap their heads around people being able to have an organized civilization that many centuries ago. Well, the Sumerians were to the ancient Greeks what the ancient Greeks are to us. They were this ancient civilization that had cities that flourished and were destroyed long before anyone at the height of ancient Greece was born. Technically, we can trace the beginning of the Sumerians to the end of the Ice Age, but that's a big technicality right there. 
After the Ice Age ended, early humans began creating systems of agriculture that meant they no longer needed to act as a hunter-gatherer society. In lands where you could easily farm, like maybe near a major river or two, a society could develop into a civilization. This is why most ancient civilizations like the Egyptians, the Chinese, and the Indus River civilization were able to exist. The people living in Mesopotamia were able to farm grain and settle down. This way of life created a population boom and small farming villages eventually became cities. The most famous of these Sumerian cities was Uruk, perhaps the most important city in Sumer, though I am sure people would be willing to argue otherwise. It was at one point the home of the semi-legendary king Gilgamesh, who I definitely want to cover in a later episode, though probably in a capacity similar to how I did King Arthur. In these cities, you begin to see society take shape with class systems and hierarchies forming. Kings, though probably acting in a capacity closer to a head priest, were at the top. Other priests and some merchants were below the king. At the bottom were the farmers. And obviously slaves would be below that, though possibly not even counted. As cities in Sumer began to grow in wealth and grain overflow, it only made sense that a system would need to be created in order to help record taxes and grain storage in a city. Enter written language, specifically cuneiform. Cuneiform is attested as the first written language to be developed in all of human history. Nowadays, historians believe that cuneiform didn't necessarily correlate to the spoken Sumerian language, but was closer to symbols representing ideas that would make memorization of money and other property easier to understand. Over time, cuneiform would actually develop into a written language like we have today as it spread across the ancient Middle East, being used by the later Sumerians, the Elamites, who we'll get into later, the ancient Persians, and yes, the Akkadians. But no matter how great these cities were, they were just that. Cities. Not entire kingdoms. There was never one leader who united all of Sumer, at least not in the early days. However, possibly after hearing word of the not too far off United Kingdom of Egypt, some of the kings in Mesopotamia began getting ideas of expanding their control. Some would go on to conquer neighboring cities, but that still only made them a relatively local king. Go check out the episode I did over empires and why they inherently suck if you want a full explanation on the difference between kingdoms and empires, but I'll try to keep it brief here. Essentially, kingdoms are, for the most part, one homogenous culture. Empires are made up of several different cultures, mostly gathered through conquest of neighboring civilizations. The ancient kings in Sumer were only ever conquering other Sumerians. Even if they were from different cities and worshipped different gods, they were still basically the same civilization. It wasn't until one man rose to power and was able to achieve his ambitions that we finally see someone in Sumer create an empire. And along with that, he will change Mesopotamia forever. The story of Sargon's rise to power states that he was once the cupbearer to King Urzababa, ruler of the ancient Sumerian city of Kish. 
Most historical records that talk about Sargon are so old that they're unreadable or just straight up lost, but somehow Sargon either usurps the throne of Kish or is chosen as a successor, most likely the former, and becomes king of Kish. But Sargon is not known as Sargon of Kish. No, he's Sargon of Akkad. So let's talk about the city he would choose as his capital. Well, we don't know where it is. Yes, it's the lost city of Akkad. We know it was definitely in Sumer. Archaeologists over the past couple decades have even taken a few decent guesses as to where it was, with most agreeing that it was probably located between the modern-day cities of Baghdad and Samarra. Given that it was eventually the seat of the Akkadian Empire, it was most likely a very powerful city, or at least became one once Sargon started accumulating more power. The city's patron goddess was Ishtar, also called Inanna, though specifically her aspect as a goddess of war. Ishtar was the goddess of many things, though in modern times she's mostly thought of as a fertility goddess and possibly even the influence for the Greek goddess Aphrodite. According to the legend Sargon had recorded about himself, he was given the blessings of Ishtar back when he served under Urzababa. When Sargon told the king of Kish about this blessing, Urzababa had Sargon sent out of the city in hopes that he would be killed. It was probably during this time that Sargon would choose to take up shop in Akkad, which would also explain why Ishtar was the city's patron goddess. The patron god of Kish was Zababa. Yes, the god was Zababa and the king was Urzababa. And some of those ancient records list Urzababa's reign as 400 years, so maybe... No, I'm joking. The Sumerians just did weird things with records back then in order to make their king seem more important. He actually ruled for just a few years, with one more believable source giving him a reign of six years. We know that at some point the city was destroyed. It had to have been, otherwise it wouldn't be a lost city. And unfortunately, after a while, people just stopped using cuneiform, so any reference to the city in that script were completely illegible until the 19th century. The only reason we knew it existed then, which is actually a bit of a stretch as you'll see, is because of a single reference to a city called Akkad in the book of Genesis in the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. Once we were able to decipher cuneiform, thanks in part to a huge monument left behind by the Persian king Darius I, we eventually found out that there was a bunch of references in historical documents referencing the city of Sargon. However, none of those sources have given us an exact location to its whereabouts. Nonetheless, with Akkad as his new capital city, Sargon was ready to start his path of conquest. As I said before, Sargon first made strides in his rise to power by usurping the throne of Kish from Urzababa. Now, the upper reaches of Sumer were beginning to come under Sargon's control. However, this meant that Sargon had to go up against a king who had been trying to do the exact same thing Sargon would eventually succeed in accomplishing, a man known as King of Sumer, Lugal Zagesi. Lugal Zagesi had once been king of the city of Uma before subjugating neighboring cities and eventually reaching the point where he was crowned king of Uruk. 
And again, I'll say that Uruk was a very important city and essentially the cornerstone of Sumer. As king of Uruk and Sumer, Lugal Zagesi had many minor kings called Ensi under his control. One of these Ensi was Urzababa. Obviously, the usurping of the throne of one of these Ensi would make Lugal Zagesi turn his head towards Sargon. If there were more detailed written accounts of the following events, they've been lost to time. It's said that Sargon marched his army south from Akkad into Lower Sumer where he won over 30 battles against Lugal Zagesi's Ensi. He captured important cities such as Uma and the great city of Ur, different from Uruk by the way. After capturing the cities surrounding Lugal Zagesi's capital, Sargon turned his armies on Uruk where he captured the city and imprisoned the king of Sumer. It's interesting to note, though, that in one of the relics that depicts Sargon's conquest of Lower Sumer, it does not show him as a just liberator freeing those cities from the hand of Lugal Zagesi. No, quite the opposite, in fact. It has the Akkadian army capturing Sargon's enemies, rounding them up, and beating them. Sargon was not trying to say he was here for peace. Remember, the patron deity of Akkad was the goddess of war. Sargon was a conqueror through subjugation. In order to truly make his subjugation of Sumer complete, Sargon led his army in the captured Lugal Zagesi to the city of Nippur. While Uruk was the political center of Sumer, Nippur was its religious heart. The city was home to the temple of Enlil, often believed to be the chief deity of the Sumerian pantheon. Sargon led the former king of Uruk up to the temple and killed him at its gates. After making his peace with the city of Nippur, the priests of Enlil gave Sargon the blessings of their god. The role of the gods in ancient Mesopotamia was very important. With Ishtar as his patron goddess and the blessings of Enlil upon him, Sargon could finally call himself the ruler of Sumer. Oh, and obviously the capital would need to be moved from Uruk to Akkad. Conquering Sumer does not make one the leader of an empire. No, Sargon would have to start reaching outside of his native land in order to claim that victory. It would have made sense for Sargon to begin conquering lands upstream along the Euphrates River into what is now modern-day Syria. In this region were the city-states of Mari and Ebla. It helped Sargon's cause that the two city-states had been at war with each other for quite some time, meaning both were weakened by the time Sargon had conquered Sumer and began looking around for further lands to bring under his control. Conquering Mari and Ebla would also provide another significant bonus to Sargon and the Akkadians, access to the Mediterranean Sea and the lands bordering it. So Sargon did just that, taking the two cities under his control. It was with these victories that Sargon officially turned his kingdom into the world's first empire. But there were still many other lands that could be his. Based on interpretations of some relics of the early Akkadian period, historians believe that Sargon may have come into contact with the Hittite people. The Hittite Empire was based out of central Anatolia in modern-day Turkey. They were once thought to be masters of ironwork, but that theory has come under scrutiny since ironworking relics of similar ages were found in Egypt. 
The Hittites did, however, do something very metal by using meteorites for sources of their iron. And while they didn't invent the chariot, the Hittites were one of the early masters of chariot-based warfare. Then again, the Hittites weren't really doing this until after the Age of Sargon. So, some of their lands in south-central Turkey were taken in the ever-growing Akkadian Empire. But perhaps one of the greatest military feats of Sargon was the conquest of Elam. The Elamites were the eastern next-door neighbors of the Sumerians, situated in the southwest of modern-day Iran. While their culture is not as old as the Sumerians, granted, they're not younger by much, Elam is still grouped together with the earliest human civilizations on Earth. Like the Hittites, the Elamites will really see their heyday after the Akkadian Empire collapses. But back in the ancient past, the Elamites and the Sumerians fought the first ever recorded war in all of history when a king of Kish led his army against Elam. So let's pick back up with Sargon. He continued that old King of Kish pastime and decided to push his army east of the Tigris River into Elam, capturing the then capital city of Awan and the equally important city of Susa, which would eventually be the capital of both Elam and the later Achaemenid Persian Empire. He would never successfully conquer all of Elam, instead creating a state of constant unrest that would last until the reign of his grandson. But Sargon had done what no other Mesopotamian king had done before. He had asserted Sumerian, now Akkadian, control over the lands of the east. His conquest brought cuneiform and the Akkadian language into Elam. With Elam somewhat under the sense of Akkadian control, Sargon made one final push to conquer the city-state of Marhasi, yet another lost city that was independent from both Mesopotamia and Elam in southern Iran. His conquests to the east were said to bring an additional 34 cities under Akkadian control. This was the extent of Sargon's power. Turkey in the north, Syria in the west, the Persian Gulf to the south, and southern Iran to the east. The Fertile Crescent, the so-called birthplace of human civilization that covered Mesopotamia and the Levant, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, was now his new empire. Now that the Akkadian Empire is firmly established, let's take a look at what that means. What did Sargon do with all of his power? Well, first and foremost was the spread of the Akkadian language. The language of Sumer was Sumerian, but the city of Akkad had its own language that had developed outside of the rest of that civilization. It used cuneiform as its writing system, but unlike its use in the Sumerian language, the Akkadian language actually used cuneiform to write syllables rather than just general phrases. The use of Akkadian spread throughout Sargon's new empire with the old Sumerian language mostly being used in religious ceremonies. The Akkadian language was so prevalent and important for the region that it would actually survive the fall of the Akkadian empire, and still be used as a major language during the later Assyrian and Babylonian empires. Sargon's massive new empire, well, massive for the time at least, also opened up a new world for Mesopotamia when it came to international trading. 
The Akkadians engaged in trade with cultures further south in the Arabian Peninsula that were rich in metal and building materials. These included copper and tin from modern-day Bahrain and the igneous stone diorite from Oman. But perhaps most impressive is the inscriptions that say under Sargon, the Akkadians traded with a location referred to as Maluha. We don't know the exact location of Maluha, what else is new for this story, but most historians think it might have been as far east as India, meaning Sargon's influence went quite a bit further than just the borders of his empire. From Maluha, Sargon received exotic animals like monkeys and elephants. He used these foreign supplies to show off the extent of his powers. It's believed that this is what helped influence later rulers to go hard on surrounding themselves with exotic luxuries. If the first emperor had done it, surely it had to mean you were powerful, right? Another interesting fact about Sargon's Akkadian Empire is that, besides perhaps being the earliest empire in the world, it was also home to the first named author in all of history. Who was this author? Well, her name was Enheduanna, and she was Sargon's daughter. She was a priestess to the moon god Nana in the city of Ur. She is recorded as having written many different temple hymns dedicated to the gods of Mesopotamia. There's been debates over whether she actually wrote any of these hymns, since most versions that have survived in the present day are versions written during later empires and newer languages, but they all mention Enheduanna as their author. And it's entirely possible that Sargon accomplished much more in his life. His rule has been dated as somewhere around 50 years in length. Much of that, I'd imagine, was needing to rebuild Mesopotamia after his conquest. Okay, and now we've reached the point that I feared we'd get to. That's kinda it as far as information we have over Sargon. So I guess we'll have to move on with plan B. We know what Sargon did for his empire during his own life, but what did the Akkadian Empire do throughout the rest of its existence? Obviously, it laid the groundwork for the great empires that would arise within the area throughout the next centuries, well, actually millennia. Without Sargon's conquest and the formation of the Akkadian Empire, there might not have been a Persian Empire about 2000 years later. It was also under the Akkadians when we saw a shift in one important aspect of the rulers of the city-states that made up the empire. In order to legitimize their rule, the NC had to ceremonially marry the goddess Ishtar. It was through her blessing, just like the blessing supposedly received by Sargon, that a city's NC could secure their rule. But for some, being ceremonially married to the goddess was not enough. Though Sargon himself is remembered with the nickname The Great, later rulers of his empire would introduce the concept of being worshipped as living gods in their own right. Whenever a previous king, such as Gilgamesh of Uruk, was written about as a god, or at least descended from the gods, this was usually a post-mortem addition. The Akkadian kings started a trend that would continue on to basically every culture in the general area and beyond. Would the emperors of Rome thought to have made themselves worshipped as gods if the Akkadians hadn't done it first? Who knows, maybe not. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is the Akkadians more or less invented what it meant to be the most powerful governing force in the area. 
what it meant to be an empire, what it meant to be ridiculously wealthy, and how to flaunt that wealth. So with that, let's move on to Sargon's judgment, okay? Like I said, this episode was kind of a weird one. I had to pull a bunch of strings in order to make it work. Honestly, kinda just glad it's not 10 minutes long. But moving on. Not to beat a dead horse, but Sargon basically invented the script that rulers would continue to follow up until fairly recent history. Some might even argue into the present day. Conquer your neighbors, flaunt your wealth, say you were blessed by the gods in order to spread your legitimacy. The only shame about all this is that it happened so long ago that we don't have a better picture of Sargon's rule. A lot of it has to be left up to speculation. How many cities did he actually conquer? How did he actually come to power? Because that's an important chapter that's just completely missing. Most of the man's life is a mystery. We only have a few pieces of historical records from his life that just say, in this year, Sargon conquered cities X, Y, and Z. So it's hard to say how great he actually was. But I mean, again, this guy is remembered for inventing the idea of an empire, and that empire of his, despite not lasting terribly long in the grand scheme of things, influenced even greater empires to come. So for that, I'm willing to give Sargon and the Akkadian Empire as a whole, I guess, a B plus on the were they great grading scale. Sargon had a pretty decent length rule in order to start the Akkadian Empire. Unfortunately, his rule would actually take up a sizable percentage of that empire. The Akkadian Empire collapsed after only about 180 years when the lands were conquered by the Gutian people from further east in Iran. But Sargon's legacy would continue on whenever one culture decided to conquer another to form an empire. Also, because there wasn't a really good place to properly put this within the episode, I do want to say that Sargon actually has quite an interesting legacy when it comes to the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. The story of how Sargon told King Urzababa, the king of Kish before Sargon, about his blessing from Ishtar is said to parallel, or maybe even inspire, the biblical story of Joseph interpreting the dreams of the pharaoh, since Sargon and Urzababa's relationship was said to have been established with Sargon interpreting the king's dreams. However, the more prevalent connection Sargon has to the Bible is that he is usually considered one of the main inspirations for the biblical figure Nimrod. Nimrod was said to be the great-grandson of Noah who would go on to be a mighty king in Mesopotamia. It's also in a passage about Nimrod where we get that singular mention about the city of Akkad that I talked about earlier. There has never been any historical evidence of a king in Mesopotamia referred to as Nimrod. So, it's believed his story was based on that of an existing ruler. So, why not base a legendary king of Mesopotamia off of a Mesopotamia king we now know as the Great? But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going back to England for a story of love, marriage, divorce, death, a lot of death, and religion. 
we're going to learn about King Henry VIII, his relationship with divorce, and the formation of the Church of England. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.